Hey, hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Ms. Danielle Pletka, a distinguished senior fellow and formerly vice president of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, join us to discuss, is the Middle East being Qatarized? Ms. Pletka will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Ms. Danielle Pletka. Thanks. Thanks for pronouncing my name almost correctly too. Always a pleasure. So I was asked to talk a little bit about a piece that I wrote in Foreign Policy um, a couple of months ago uh, called the Qatarization of the Middle East. Now, what does that mean? So the issue that confronts a lot of us who work on Middle East related issues is the fact that um, Qatar seems to be a, a perennial spoiler. For any of you who are familiar with Al Jazeera, the Qatar government-backed news station, you'll understand exactly what I'm saying immediately. Um, Al Jazeera, um, let's put it this way. They like to play both sides, um, but more importantly, um, they like to play the side that is both, most going to stick in the craw of the United States and of their Gulf allies. So for example, during the war in Iraq, um, they were often extraordinarily sympathetic to Al-Qaeda and ISIS, to the point where the US Pentagon accused um, Al Jazeera of coordinating attacks um, with Al-Qaeda in order to ensure that the maximum number of people were there in order to be injured. They were often at the forefront of publicizing statements by Osama bin Laden. They've been very sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood. They had a, um, a terrible relationship for a number of years beginning during the Trump administration with their Gulf allies, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, although they dragged Bahrain and Egypt along. And that relationship soured over the fact that opponents to of both regimes, whether it was the Saudi regime or it was the Emirati regime, uh, were living and being supported by the Qatari government. Now, that's sort of one side of the story. They're also where the Taliban is. In fact, when the United States uh, undertook negotiations with the Taliban prior to our disgraceful withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan, it was in Qatar, where a lot of the Taliban figures are living, including those who have supported acts of terrorism against the United States. It's a kind of a difficult place. Now, that being said, it's also a place where the United States has an extraordinarily important airbase, where we have some prepositioned equipment. We flew out of Qatar for a whole variety of operations that took place in, um, in South Asia and even in the Middle East. They've always afforded us great latitude in our operations out of Qatar and um, the Al-Udaid base works seamlessly with our fifth fleet, which is headquartered in Bahrain. We have a lot going on in the Emirates. And yet here's Qatar really playing both sides. They've always, in addition to supporting Sunni extremists, been very warm towards um, Shiite extremists. And so they've always been very warm towards the Islamic Republic of Iran, which has caused no end of problems, not just with their neighbors, but also with the United States. Strangely, however, we tend to ignore that part of their behavior 
and just focus on their behavior that relates to CENTCOM, our, cent our military command that's headquartered in, in the Middle East and that most uses um, Al-Udaid. It's a very funny sort of a place. And it's um, a funny relationship that they have with everybody. I use the word funny um, in the context of, of the Middle East in which you know we have difficult relations with a lot of countries uh, and good relations with a very few countries, but Qatar just sort of manages to walk on this balancing beam. For any of you who've ever walked on a balancing beam, you know that's not actually that easy. And it's extraordinarily easy for one side or the other to take their finger and poke you and knock you off. And yet the Qataris have not only maintained that posture, but they have done so quite successfully without alienating either the Iranians or the Americans. And now again, we have a rapprochement even with those four countries that sought to, that sought to, to um, truly punish them for their positions, Saudi, the Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and, and Egypt. So there we have Qatar in a nutshell. So why did I talk about the Qatarization of the Middle East? Well, for a number of years, since I would say the Obama administration, the United States has talked about pivoting away uh, from the Middle East to Asia. And I always tell everybody the exact same thing. What is a pivot? A pivot is when you turn around and face something else, and therefore something is uh, facing your back. That would be the Middle East. And obviously, they've never been particularly enamored of the United States talking about the pivot, let alone executing. But I would say um, Obama began this trend, but it was very um, seamlessly carried forward by Donald Trump, who also hoped to turn the American back on the Middle East. Now, what do we say when we're turning our back on the Middle East? You know, no more wars, no more Iraq, no more dealing with dictators, no more caring what Bashar al-Assad is doing in Syria, no more serious attention towards terrorist groups that are headquartered in Lebanon or coming out of Iran. And even, um, I would say, while we would maintain our friendship with Israel, which is very important to the United States, nonetheless, not really prioritizing either relationship, either the relationship or the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, which used to be, as you all remember, at the very, very center of the American relationship in the Middle East. And um, in, in deciding that we would turn our back on the region, Barack Obama had one model. His model was, we've made a huge mistake over the last half a century. And what we ought to do is we ought to try to negotiate our relationships through the region, not through the prism of our relationship with Israel or the prism of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, but through the prism of our relationship with Iran. These Sunni Arabs have never done anything good for us. Why don't we try with the Shiites and see? And he very infamously said, you two, to the Saudis, you too, the Saudis and the Iranians are going to need to learn to share the region as if somehow it could be divided between the Sunni and the Shia. He obviously forgot about Israel and the United States would have no role to play. Donald Trump had a different idea about this, which is that he would create the same result, our ability to walk away from the region by putting a lot of the burden on Israel. In other words, when the Saudis, when the Emiratis, when others had a problem and were worried about their safety and security and the threat of Iran, rather than turn to the United States, 
they would turn to Israel. And this is really sort of the premise at the heart of the Abraham Accords. And, you know, I think we can, we, it, a totally separate conversation. Why am I giving you this huge amount of background? Um, the main reason is so you understand not what the perspective is so much from Washington, but what the perspective is from the region. We've now had three presidents in a row who have basically said, I want to turn my back on the Middle East for a variety of different reasons with a variety of different objectives. President Biden, uh, like his um, former boss, Barack Obama, uh, skedaddled out of Afghanistan. Yes, Donald Trump wanted to do the same thing. Barack Obama skedaddled out of Iraq. Both of these were not simply a disgrace in terms of our behavior, in terms of our conduct, in terms of our relationship with our allies or the security and safety of people who we had previously professed to care about. It was also a slap in the face to everybody who ever depended on the United States. Every country who thought to themselves, okay, when I'm in a rough spot, who am I going to turn to? I'm going to turn to Washington. When the Iranians are trying to send missiles and drones, when they're using terrorist proxies to attack us, I'm going to turn to the United States. And historically, the United States has been there. What they're starting to believe at this point is, no, nope, the United States is not going to be there. In fact, the United States is never going to be there again. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. I certainly hope not, because we have a lot at stake in the region and not just energy supplies, but also values, terrorist organizations and allies who depend on us. Um, so the way that they've signaled this most aggressively is obviously via the Saudis with their unwillingness to accommodate President Biden when he wanted lower oil prices. OK, that's not unprecedented. I think that that was um, an episode misplayed by both uh, those in Riyadh and those in Washington. But even more importantly, these countries are starting to hedge their bets. And this is what I mean by the word Qatarization. Just as the Qataris have perfected this art of walking the balance beam of geopolitical strategy and diplomacy, so too the Emiratis and the Saudis and others in particular are doing the same thing. How do we see that? They are reaching out to the Chinese. They are buying weapons from the Russians. They are not enforcing in any serious way the sanctions regime against Vladimir Putin because of his invasion of Ukraine. On top of that, they are engaged in what I'm going to cautiously call a rapprochement with Iran. Now, we know the foundations of these uh, problems. The relationship between the Sunni Arab powers and the Shia regime in Tehran is never going to be good. Never. It can't be because the fundamentals simply won't allow it. And the politics, frankly, of the of, of the Islamic Republic of Iran won't allow it. But both the Saudis and the Emiratis have been engaged in negotiations with the Iranians. The Emiratis decided in August of this year to return their ambassador to Tehran. Their ambassador had been gone for six years. The Saudis the Saudis uh, have been uh, engaged in negotiations that were brokered by the that were brokered by the Baghdad government with Iran. Again, with a view to ratcheting down tensions, the Saudi priorities are somewhat different from our own. The Saudis want to ensure that the Iranians stop helping the Houthis in Yemen. That they stop trying to destabilize Saudi society. I don't think they've made much headway, but I think there's no question that they've been hedging their bets 
because their trust in the United States is gone. And I think they are equally concerned in the Levant that um, the Israelis aren't necessarily going to be there to support them. Saudi Arabia, obviously not a member of the Abraham Accords, although there's lots of talk of it, but they are hedging their bets in Syria. They are hedging their bets everywhere. Now I wanna make a, a final point about this that um, contradicts everything I just said and feel free to call me on it. I have, um, uh, I probably deserve it. One of the things that I said in a subsequent article was, well, that's all good and fine. You can go to the Russians, you can play footsie with the Chinese, you can start inking deals so that you buy weaponry from them. You can make nice with Xi Jinping. He doesn't care about democracy either. No strings attached. What a great deal for you in whether it is Dubai or Abu Dhabi or it is in Riyadh or wherever it is. Oh, more power to you guys, you know, if you think you can do that. But when push comes to shove, when you have a security challenge, I can assure you that even though you're playing this game right now with Moscow and with Beijing, the reality is when push comes to shove, you're still going to turn to us because the Chinese aren't interested in coming in on one side or the other in the Middle Eastern conflicts. They're not interested in supporting Israel over the Palestinians. They're not interested in supporting Assad over his enemies. And they're certainly not interested in playing one side or the other in the conflict between Iran and everybody at this point. And that's the problem. Ditto for the Russians. While the Russians put themselves in Syria, at the same time, they've had a very warm relationship with the Iranians. And yet they also tried to establish a base in Egypt. They still have a very excessively, to, to the mind of many of us in Washington, warm relationship with Putin. And so the notion that somehow these countries are going to start playing the games of the Middle East that the United States has been willing to engage in low these many years, I think is actually ridiculous. I think that's going to come back and slap both uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and our friends in uh, Abu Dhabi very, very seriously. And that's something for them to think about. But in the meantime, they've been playing the game. They've been hedging their bets. They've been trying to, they've been trying to suggest that they're not all reliant on the United States. They've been trying to suggest indeed that they're really not interested in taking the side, sides with the United States against other country. How long will this last? Well, at least as long as the Biden administration, that's for sure. And I haven't talked a lot about Washington politics, but if you wanna talk about that in the Q and A, don't hesitate to put it in the questions. Okay, I have blabbed successfully as threatened for 15 minutes, and I'm now going to look at the Q&A. Right, and how would, you, how would you like me to handle it? Would you like me just to go through the questions and paraphrase them, or how, what would you like me to do? I usually come on and ask questions. All right, go for it. But if you have any that you you really want to answer, feel free to jump in there. I'm very, uh, I'm very happy to manage it however you choose. Okay, wonderful. So I'm going to start with uh, JL's question. Other than the airbase that we have in Qatar, what do we need from them? Why not simply relocate the airbase to a more friendly country in the Middle East? What a clever question. In fact, years ago, just years ago, must be seven, maybe eight years ago, Jack Keane, General Jack Keane, who may be familiar to all of you, and I had a piece in the, um, in the Wall Street Journal in which we said exactly that. The late John McCain um, was also uh, with his amigos, with Joe Lieberman, with uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, a champion of moving out of Qatar. 
you know, look, what the secret, and JL, I don't know what, what, what your first name and your last name are, but JL, the secret here is not that we are in Qatar and that they believe that we, they have us by the short hairs, which they don't. The real point here is they pay for a lot of that. They pay for a lot of our basing there. They pay for a lot of pre-positioning there. They give the money. And the Pentagon, which gets less and less money for operational things and more and more money, unfortunately, to spend on entitlements, nonetheless, pardon me, nonetheless, um, really, really likes this. And there's a real strong relationship. It would be super hard to move out of Qatar. I think that we ought to. I mean, I think that they've given us enough messages that the right choice is to turn around and not just threaten them with legislation or threaten them with moving out, but actually begin the process of moving out. If we're really turning our back on the Middle East, let's put an airbase somewhere where we can trust our hosts just a little better than we do the 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 Qataris. Next. Absolutely. So Peter asked, do you have any comments on the State Department's competence in the Gulf? Well, let me first say that it is hard to criticize the statement, the State Department in the Gulf, given that we don't have very many ambassadors in the Gulf. One of the raps on, um, on Donald Trump, which I thought was completely accurate, was his total indifference to the total indifference to the um, the question of whether we had diplomatic representation in countries. It was like, ah, who cares? You know, I'm running a country. I don't need those idiots off there. That's completely wrong. It's not. It's not just from the sort of the, the 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 questions on the questions of grand strategy that we've been talking about today. The big issues: Iraq, Iran, Israel, Palestine, terrorism, oil, energy prices, climate, whatever it is. It's not just that. You need to manage a relationship day to day to day to day to day. And when we don't have an ambassador, we don't have a liaison with that government. We only have some flunky who they rightly assume is a lower level person who reflects the lack of prioritization of their country. We haven't ha got an ambassador in Saudi Arabia. We hadn't had an ambassador in Iraq. It's a disgrace that the administration has not nominated anybody for a whole variety of countries, including outside the Middle East. As I had, uh, I had breakfast with the Singaporean foreign minister just a couple of days ago, and he said they haven't had an ambassador there for five years. You know. Singapore isn't some, you know, as, as somebody rather rudely said sitting next to me, it's not Burkina Faso. So I don't want to blame the State Department too much for the failures that are going on day to day. I do think that there is, um, I'm not a huge fan of how the State Department manages the relationship. I think we have a, a very good um, confirmed uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of State in charge of the Near East, who I like Barbara Leaf, who may be familiar to you. She was at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy for a while after she resigned from the Foreign Service. She's a good soul. The problem is you can't be better than the president. You can't be better than the National Security Advisor. You can't be better than the Pentagon. And all three, if we can call uh, the National Security Advisor and the White House two separate things, which they're not really, um, all three are terrible on these relationships, terrible on being reliable terrible on understanding what it is the Iranians are doing to destabilize the region that really makes a lot of our erstwhile friends and partners nervous. So, you know, I think there's lots of blame to go around. 
some with what Donald Trump loved to call the deep state, and some with the current White House that doesn't seem to prioritize actually having diplomatic missions anywhere. Next. Thank you. Larry Greenberg asks, if the U.S. wants to transfer its umbrella to Israel via the Abraham Alliance, how would this be accomplished? So that is a great question. I really do think that um, I really do think this was the conceit uh, of the of the Trump administration. Um, it's a it's a it's an interesting bit of the kind of nerd thinking that we do at the American Enterprise Institute that the Middle East Forum engages in as well. And this is what is really behind a lot of the overtly stated strategies um, of various administrations. Now, for Obama, you know, I'm not a fan of the JCPOA, the Iran deal, but I think Obama thought to himself, okay, all of you are bitching and moaning about the fact that Iran is so terrible, Iran is so destabilizing, Iran is building a bomb. Oh my God, they've got a bomb. They're six months away from a bomb. They're four months away from a bomb. It's really bad. Um, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with the bomb. Now, Again, I think I suspect most of us agree he didn't do a great job at that, but I'm going to deal with this bomb question. And then we're going to kind of put a line under Iran. We're going to put a line under the Middle East and we're going to turn to other things that matter. Right. I'm going to deal with your big problem, Iran. And then I'm going to deal with other stuff that matters more to the United States, like rising China, China's geostrategic threat to us. Fair enough. You know, again, I don't agree, but I think that was the conceit. I think that in many ways, the Trump administration wasn't dissimilar, right? What did they do and say? They were thinking to themselves, okay, what's the problem here? The problem is Iran. Okay, Iran is a danger. Iran is a threat. We're not gonna make nice with Iran like Obama. What we're gonna do is we're gonna solve this problem whereby you all are so focused on fighting each other that you can't get together to fight Iran, okay? So now let's get you together, let's add Bahrain, let's add the United Arab Emirates, let's add Morocco, let's add a whole series of other countries to the, the alliance with Israel. And then why don't you guys worry more about Iran? Why don't you guys take care of it? After all, this is your backyard, not ours, right? And I think a lot of, a lot of that strategic thinking, what George Bush called strategery, was the idea still that we could kind of hand off, you know, okay, guys, you worry about this. Maybe if you need us, let, let me know. But, you know, we'll only think about it. We're not going to be there for you every time you have a sniffle. And I think that was the, the idea. Same in the Biden administration. So I think that's how they thought it would work. And to a certain extent, that is how it works. All those Arab states recognize that for Israel, this is an existential question. And therefore, if they coordinate with the Israelis, whether behind the scenes or overtly on Iran, then therefore they can also derive some of the protection that Israel demands for itself from Iran. So that's how I think it, it works. You all may say I'm overthinking this and, and don't hesitate to email me afterwards um, and yell at me, dpletka at AEI.org. Let's go on to another question. Thank you. Speaking of Iran, Dennis Karpfas, will Iranian drones limit the delusion of further negotiations for Iranian nuclear energy? Hmm. Well, uh, uh, that's a great question. So uh, 
I think um, I think that the Biden administration was eager, notwithstanding what's going on in Iran, even notwithstanding what happened with Mahsa Amini, um, the, the young woman who was murdered by Iranian security forces, the first of now many who have been murdered by Iranian security forces in the course of the demonstrations that are going on. I think that the Biden administration was still willing to go back to the nuclear talks. I think what helped put what I understand, for the moment at least, is a nail in the coffin of the talks that are going on in Vienna is their uh, Iran's provision of um, drones, not just provision now, but also technical support for uh, drones um, attacks in uh, by Russia against um, uh, against Ukraine. I will say this though, and I commend to you all the work that is being done by my colleague Frederick Kagan and our sister institution, the Institute for the Study of War. One of the most fascinating things about this is um, those drones stink. They're just lousy. The, you, sure, they're hitting some targets, but the Russians have been so far reduced, A, that they're relying on North Korea for ammo and the Iranians for drones, but B, that the uh, Ukrainians are really capable of shooting them down. But I think the Biden administration is really, really mad about that. Rightly so. For once, they're saying something I agree with. And I think that is really... Um, uh, put a, a stick in the spoke of any momentum that might have remained for the JCPOA. At least I hope so. Next question. Thank you. Speaking of the demonstrations in Iran, Tafi Gould asks, how do you think the demonstrations in Iran are affecting other Middle East countries? Um, you know, anytime Iran is visited with misfortune, the rest of the Middle East celebrates. Um, it's interesting to me because uh, this really does put Iran in a quandary. So uh, we can dismiss with Israel and the Sunni, most of the Sunni Arab countries um, with the simple statement, you know, they see people demonstrating the against the administration in, uh, in Tehran and their attitude is, you go girl, demonstrate, you know, these people stink. I think where it's um, more interesting for us is to talk about what the impact will be in a place like Syria, okay? Um, because the Russians are withdrawing their forces from Syria in order to have them fight in Ukraine. Um, they they did such a great job in Syria. You know, why not bring them to that really winning battle against uh, against Ukraine? And um, and the, that means that a lot of the burden for fighting against ISIS and for other groups. Um, many of them supported by Qatar in Syria, really falls both to Hezbollah and to Iran. Um, and that is going to be very interesting to see, because um, I don't know if any of you caught the fact that the Israeli foreign minister was, I mean, excuse me, defense minister, Benny Gantz, was in Ankara on Wednesday. Um, no Israeli defense minister has been in Ankara for a while, and there shouldn't be any doubt that one of the things they're talking about is what to do in Syria. So I'm sort of focused on that. When you talk about the external implications of what Iran is up to in these places, I'm focused on um, how it's going to impact the groups that they support, whether it's Bashar al-Assad or it's Hamas or it's Hezbollah or it's the Houthis. Um, and I don't think enough attention has been paid to that, but I think it's a very, very interesting question because these demonstrations are A, costing them money, B, 
be forcing them to put security resources at home where they once had hoped to have them on expeditionary, you know, adventures in Yemen and Lebanon and Syria and the West Bank, et cetera. So, you know, fingers crossed this is actually hurting them even in other ways. Got two more minutes. Thank you. I will try uh, and be more succinct. Of course. Francois Limbaud asked, uh, are you saying that Qatar's attempt at westernization has failed terribly to the point you suggest the U.S. exits Qatar? And I will follow up with, do you think the U.S. should pivot back and should we should we continue to to be involved in the Middle East? Well, I always think we should be involved in the Middle East. Um, so uh, the Socorro's attack on Qatar's human rights. Look, um, Qatar bought that, um, bought this 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 uh, this uh, World Cup. It's a disgrace. Um, the fact that they were able to do that, the fact that they were able to pay the money, pay the bribes, and that absolutely no one involved was um, convicted, they were prosecuted, but they were not convicted uh, of this is just gross. Um, truly, it, it is. And so, yeah, absolutely. Just as I was repulsed by the idea that we were holding Olympics in China at the same moment that they were threatening Taiwan, murdering Uyghurs, and doing whatever else it is they're up to in the South China Sea, where Hong Kong, you know, similarly in, in a place like Qatar, you should not have any doubt that a major sports event is like the good housekeeping seal of approval. It earns the money but it also earns them lots and lots of credit. And it's a terrible thing. So I wholeheartedly agree that, um, that groups should, that, that we should not allow this to happen. Um, there was the follow-up the follow question, which is, should we re-pivot to the Middle East? Look, you know, this is where I started just before I was about to answer. This is, we're the United States of America, at least those of you who are Americans on this, uh, on this webinar. Um, we're the United States of America. If, if we can't chew gum and walk, maybe our priorities are wrong. If we can't fund our defense department to deal with the threats against us that are coming, not just from Moscow, not just from Beijing, but also from Tehran, from Al-Qaeda, then we need some new management. You know, we need some new management in the White House. We need some new management in the Pentagon. I don't think we can ever turn our back on the Middle East. And it's not simply because we because um, we don't actually buy most of our energy from, from the region. It is because trouble comes from the region. It is an unstable area. And every time we turn our back, they drag us back in with an event like 9-11, the rise of ISIS in Iraq. We shouldn't lie to ourselves. This requires maintenance. The relationship requires maintenance and our enemies require us to keep our foot, if I may put it elegantly, on their necks. That is a really just stylish way to end this Q&A. <laughs> Thank you for the great questions. I'm sorry for those that we missed. Absolutely, and before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Yes, absolutely. So as you all know, I'm at the American Enterprise Institute. That's www.aei. Dot org. And you can find my work on our website. You can also listen to my podcast that I co-host with my colleague, Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, Mark Thiessen. It's called, and you'll all like this and appreciate it, What the Hell is Going On? Um, it, it's a really fun and really great podcast. I commend it to you. We have a Substack that goes along with it, also called What the Hell is Going On? So you can find it anywhere, and I look forward to hearing from you. Wonderful. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again so much for joining us today. Thank you. Cheers. Good moderating. And thank you to everybody for being here.
Have a great weekend. You too. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.